So we continue on this becoming our true selves, and today, well, first of all, aren't you glad you made it through hell last week? You did it. All right, we made it. <clears throat> and uh, this week we're taking a look at purgatory, which is right up there with hell. Nobody really wants uh, to do much with purgatory. It's usually uh, talked about in sort of a negative way. You know, things aren't going well if you're in purgatory. Uh, but we're going to find out that Dante, the way he frames it, not only was hell kind of a really good space to be for informative purposes, but so is purgatory. In fact, it's a necessary uh, thing that we go through. And uh, if you've heard me talk about this, been catching the series, you know that it's kind of a cycle, that at times we find ourselves in the dark wood of error where something's not quite sitting right and life isn't going right and it feels off and we know it, but we don't quite know how to get out of it. And sometimes then a guide will show up. Maybe it's an author in a book. Maybe it's a literal person that comes into our life or a group of people or what have you. And they invite us uh, not to try to understand <clears throat> uh, how to get out of our angst uh, in ways that maybe our culture would suggest. But they actually have us take a deeper dive into what's really going on. And that takes us into the inferno, which is scary and all cowardice must die uh, as we go in there to look at ourselves and understand ourselves better. But then once we get to the very pit of hell, the inferno, uh, we find out that we can break through that into a climb up purgatory, which is almost like a mountain. It's the inverse of the inferno. And now we find ourselves looking straight up a hike that is going to be challenging. To get us there, um, there is a passage of scripture that millions, well, yeah, maybe, I don't know how many churches there are in the world, but I would say the majority of them today are looking at the same text we are, uh, which comes out of the Gospel of John. And this is a really interesting uh, passage, and there's a new piece of this, sorry for the small print, uh, but I'll be reading it anyway, so you'll be fine. Uh, there's, a, there's a piece here which was standing there right in front of my face, and I never noticed it before. And that may not be that big of a deal uh, to some of you, but I did my doctoral work in the Gospel of John. I did a deep dive on the Gospel of John, and I missed <laughs> something so obvious that a scholar pointed out this week uh, in the commentary. And I can't believe that I missed it. So anyway, let me just march you through this, and then uh, we'll talk about it briefly, and then make our way to purgatory. So the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, okay? Uh, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God, the anointed one, the Christ. That means anointed. The anointed one, the Messiah, Hebrew word for Christ, same thing, the anointed one. Jesus had this experience happen to him, and John the Baptist somehow witnessed it and experienced it right along with him. Uh, we're going to talk more about 
what happened after that um, has a lot to do with that uh, painting, picture, whatever we call this tapestry thing over here. Uh, because that's what Jesus did immediately following the baptism. Something happened to him that was so profound, he had to get out of Dodge and sort it out. So he went on a camping trip for a while. But that we'll talk about next week. What I want to take a look at is something about um, what John is telling us about Jesus. And the first piece that you've heard me say before, and I didn't come up with this, um, somebody else pointed it out to me as well, uh, that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world not the sins of the world. And that's really significant. So we just sang this song, It Is Well With My Soul, and uh, there's a verse in there, you know, uh, he cancels my sin, not the whole, not the part, but the whole. You know, that's kind of the idea. And most of us who've been raised in church, that's the way we think about Jesus and dying and all that as a cancellation of sin. The fancy word for that is penal substitutionary atonement. Everybody say it together. Penal substitutionary atonement. And uh, that's what we're very familiar with. It's very bloody. Uh, we're, we've been told there's this great distance between us and God that can only be met by the cross and the blood therein. And if we don't do it, we're toast and going, to, going back to hell where we were last week, but in a more <laughs> eternal kind of a way and all this stuff. Now the ancient church, eventually uh, some of them uh, looked at it that way and the church kind of ran with it. But originally that's, that's not what anybody was thinking. That's what, that nobody was thinking that. Uh, for the first many decades of the early church. And the thing that was really pointed out to me, because I would just read this, this one line, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and I was like, okay, sacrifice again. But that's not what John is saying. He's talking about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not talking about the sheep of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not talking about the goat He's not talking about the bull, and he's not talking about birds who take away the sin of the world. He's talking about the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And the reason that's important is because lambs were not used for penal substitutionary atonement. Lambs were not used to cancel sin. And the first thing John is telling us is what we're looking at here is a lamb. Now you and I were like sheep, lamb, whatever. Meet Pete. We thought we were going to get something really exciting and that's all you give us is lamb. But it is. Because John is telling us something. If we were Jewish people, we would immediately catch the connection. That in the Passover, uh, that preceded, immediately preceded the exodus of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. The Passover, which was this horrible final plague that uh, would take the firstborn, you know, of all households uh, in Egypt to be sort of the final thing for Pharaoh to finally let the people go. If the people of Israel would slaughter a lamb, I know it's gross, but that's how they thought back then, and paint the blood of that lamb uh, over their doorposts as a covering. That angel of death, think old mythology stuff, don't get too carried away with that, just go with the story, but the angel of death would pass over those houses and the people would be free to go. The Lamb of God is a sign of liberation, a sign of freeing people. John is saying, I see this one 
who came to liberate people out of their bondage, out of their slavery, not cancel sins, but to free them from the sin of the world. The sin of the world, collectively. The sin of the world is that the, the world has bought into a lie, many lies, but one big fat lie, which is that there is a separation between us and God, a separation between us, each other, a separation even within ourselves. And when we allow ourselves to go full on with that idea, that lie of separation, all manner of harm can ensue. Because we feel distance from God like God doesn't care, so we can do whatever the hell we want. We can treat each other poorly because we think separation is there too, and I can look at you as different and other and enemy and treat you however I want. This is the sin of the world not recognize the greater truth that we live in. We collectively have been in the dark wood of error as an entire creation, entire people. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the one who will liberate us from that lie that leads to injustice of many kinds, leads to suffering of many kinds. It's an entirely different way of thinking about his mission. And that was his mission. So I've already talked about uh, what we're looking here. Um, and by the way, on that, on that justice thing or that freedom uh, from bondage, man, you're going to hear really amazing stats and stories next week uh, because Pam Gun Gums is all about that. Uh, she uh, works for an organization that literally is about freeing women uh, from modern-day slavery. I mean, it's going to be really incredible. So don't miss out on that. And that's coming. And get in on the Bible study that's with it. So I've already talked to you about this cycle. The dark wood of error leads us into the inferno and then purgatory. Next time I'm here, uh, in a couple weeks, uh, we'll be talking about paradise, which is a little different than heaven, but it's kind of related to that. Well, how do we think about purgatory? I'm playing with words here, but I want you to think about purgatory as an activity of purge a story. Purgatory is purging a story on our way to, uh, toward our true selves. So the idea is, is that we have adopted uh, untruths. We've adopted lies. Some of these lies have been told to us. Some of these lies we've just adopted culturally. Some of the lies we've told ourselves. Uh, but these are lies that cause uh, a, a, a dissonance, uh, a, a tension between who we really are. And going through the inferno helps us see what these lies are and help us come to grips with how we've lied to ourselves, how we've lied to others, that we've adopted lies. And purgatory is meant to help us start to live in new ways that are not about the lies. And the way the thing starts, and I'll kind of unpack this to help you understand what's going on from Martha Beck and Dante, uh, the first few steps of this new way of being, of this new life, are really, really steep and really, really hard. But the higher we get up this purgatory, which is just the opposite you know, shape of, of the inferno, the easier it gets. So how many of you have already blown your New Year's resolutions? It's a safe space, you can admit it. So I'm, I'm guessing that by no hands, all the hands are up. All right, right? Why is that? Why do we struggle so much? Because it's not easy, that's why. Sometimes we have too big of a goal and we think, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a marathon by January 16. 
I haven't run in years, but I'm going to do it. And so we start running, and day two, it's over, <laughs> right? Because it's such a high hurdle for us to climb. Any kind of major change in that kind of thing, if it's exercise or physical health or, or uh, dietary kind of stuff, anytime we make that kind of a major change, we might have an adrenaline rush that will get us a little while, but then it kind of sets in, and then we're like, ah, oh, man, this is... This is really hard. This is going against my life pattern as it's been for a long time. This is so hard. And eventually, if we don't have support systems in place, we give up in exhaustion. That's normal and natural. The reality is, is we do this all the time in our, in our pursuit of true selves. Because our whole life, we have been uh, integrating and adopting and embracing things that may not be true. And they become normal to us. It's the way we live our lives. And then when we finally see that we've been living our life on maybe a small lie or a great lie, when we finally recognize that and start to try to live differently, it's difficult. And one of the reasons it's difficult, and by the way, what that freedom looks like if we're really living in our true selves, this is from Martha Beck, uh, it says to know what you really know, feel what you really feel, say what you really mean, and do what you really want. This doesn't lead us, by the way, to hedonism. This actually, if we're really grounded in our truest selves, which is a deeply rooted kind of a space, it actually leads us to places of great beauty, not selfishness. So you can hold on to that. But what, uh, what we find out in this pursuit that Beck talks about is that there are to be expected what she calls change back attacks. Change back attacks. Uh, forces that will come upon us when we're trying to live in truth instead of whatever levels of lies that we've been embracing. And those change back attacks are simply trying to get us to change back to who we were and the lies that we were embracing and living. Uh, call it pushback, uh, if that's easier. But these things are there to, to take us back. Have any of you ever felt that uh, before? Absolutely. I know people that have gone through recovery process and there's all kinds of change back attacks that are happening to people who are pursuing recovery. There are physical things, reactions to no longer drinking or using or whatever that thing uh, they may be addicted to is. And so their body literally is like, oh, I just want this substance or whatever. But it's not just that. It's also the culture of the addiction. And so they're giving up that culture, their way of life for a long time. Their social network, the whole thing uh, comes into play. This actually is deep, deeply rooted in systems theory. Systems theory, either on a small family system or on a large scale that might be uh, governmental in size or even global in terms of the whole of humanity. Systems theory says this, that there are systems that are created that help the world go along and help, help us function as human beings. And the better systems kind of stick because they help us move along. Even if they're destructive, the systems will be there. So in like alcoholic families, uh, you will see a an unhealthy system there because everybody is uh, sort of accommodating uh, the person who is in not in recovery, who is a full-blown addict. And there's a lot of tiptoeing around and being careful uh, to make sure that uh, everybody stays safe. But at some point that system can't hold on to that big of a lie. 
And there's what comes uh, to be called uh, uh, the identified patient. The identified patient is sort of like the, th the sore thumb that, that shows up. The, the identified patient is not the problem in the system, particularly in an alcoholic environment. Uh, the identified patient is simply, you know, the whistleblower. It's kind of the, the thing that is reacting to the sick system. A lot of times it's kids. Uh, they don't know what's going on. They can't articulate what's happening. But all of a sudden, they're acting out like crazy because dad is drunk most of the time and is unavailable. So people look at their focus on the kid. Why is this kid screwing up so much? Why is he having so much trouble? And everybody's trying to fix the kid when the problem is the alcoholic in the family. When that kid or when anybody in that system starts to change the system, the system goes into change back attack mode. The alcoholic in the family will say, I'm not the problem. He's the one that's obviously the problem. My son is the one with the issues. He's the one that's acting out, not me. There's denial. There's pressure to just get back to normal. Relationships get in this way. Systems develop in long-term relationships. This is the way it's always been, and it just seems like it's on rails. It's never going to depart. But if one person in that partnership says, I need to make a change, and they make that change, it causes severe disruption in that relationship and severe change back attacks. This is a normal course of action. It's based in systems theory, and she is right. So Martha Beck, uh, after uh, going through a lot of severe challenges, and by this time in her life, she's living in Utah, she's teaching at Brigham Young University, and she has deep problems uh, with some of the positions of the university, uh, wanting her to uh, uphold uh, some of the Mormon doctrine, even though they didn't jibe uh, with science or research or archaeology. Uh, but she had to be careful. And if she were to touch that third rail, there'd be hell to pay. There were also some things like in other uh, branches of organized religion, uh, there was sexual misconduct cover-up happening within the Mormon church. And she knew about it. Her background was sociology, so she was very aware of the dynamics that were happening there. Uh, but nobody could talk about it because they needed to keep this image of the Mormon church as this pure, uh, perfect model of humanity, even though it wasn't. So in the middle of this, she made a decision as she's sorting through this true self stuff and way of integrity. She made a decision to go an entire year without lying. Not one lie, as best as she could, as she understood them. It's meant she wouldn't lie to herself anymore, and she wouldn't lie to others. Now, you might think, well, I could do that. But let me ask you, um, did anybody ask you how you're doing today? Probably, or on your table, and you're doing a greeting or something like that. And did any of you say, I'm doing fine, or I'm doing great, even though you're not? I bet some of you did. I bet some of you came in today and, you know, nothing big's going wrong with you. You're just kind of gloomy because we've been in this torrential rain forever, right? And you're just kind of feeling sad. But you're not going to say that publicly or socially because that's not acceptable. So you just say, I'm fine. I'm fine. When you're really not fine. And some of you, it's much different than that. There's a whole different of not fine going on. But socially... We put on the happy face and we go forward. Is everybody comfortable here today? Feeling comfortable? Uh, if you were going to watch the Super Bowl, would you be sitting in these chairs? Would you feel just like this in your ideal environment? 
No, you would not. You're really not that comfortable. But when I say, are you comfortable? You're like, oh, I'm comfortable. No, I'm not really comfortable. See, you're lying, you liars. You see what I'm saying? So uh, that's the kind of thing that Martha Beck started with. And she had to kind of navigate this a little bit, especially on that, like, you know, nice social uh, engagement and stuff. So people would ask her how she's doing, and sometimes she'd just completely divert and say, wow, isn't it, it is raining out there today. How do you think we're all doing? Just to totally avoid it. If she couldn't avoid it and somebody was totally persistent with it and asked her how she's doing, instead of saying fine, she'd say, oh, I'm a hot mess. And she found out that people would just kind of accept that and kind of laugh a little bit like, oh yeah, hot mess, <laughs> we're all hot messes, and just kind of go on with their day, never go any deeper. And she could get away with being honest, even if the other person didn't know. She really was a hot mess. <laughs> Uh, she started to do similar things uh, in academia, and she refused to lie anymore about some of the doctrines she was told to, uh, to keep to herself and to protect. And it got headlines in Utah for pushing back. It caused major waves uh, within the Mormon uh, circles. And when it came down to uh, some of the sexual cover-ups, including a cover-up of her own father who was a big deal in the Mormon church, an apologist for them. And when she started to talk openly about that, she felt all of the weight of the worst changebacks you can imagine, from the denial of her father and mother, even though they both knew it was true, from the denial and not any interest whatsoever from any of the Mormon hierarchy because they wanted to protect the name of her father and the integrity of the church, ironically. Changeback attacks happen all the time when we do this. Sometimes it's just a lie that we're telling ourselves and, and we get this initial reaction because we have to keep our lives, we have to stay sane, right? And so there might be some lies that we tell ourselves that when we start to say the truth, there's a part of us that won't go there because it's almost too hard to believe the truth even even though we know it's the truth and to go the other way is a lie. This happens in our personal lives. This happens in terms of lies we choose to believe even when confronted with the truth. Um, this, this has happened globally. This happens to this day when it comes to really obvious scientific types of things. This happened in our history. The idea that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around even though uh, scientists could prove it and say, no, this is really, really true, most people flat out denied it, even when the evidence was there. We have our own issues today, all over the world and right here in our country and in our community. Things that we tell ourselves, uh, it really is this way, even though the evidence and the data says, now there's some problems here. Things of economy, things that tap into justice, many things. In my life, um, being a pastor, uh, I found myself in a very weird place. You know, who Crosswalk has become, uh, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that I still have a job, uh, frankly, uh, because the journey here to become who we are, some of you are newer to Crosswalk and you may not know our story, and I'm not going to go through that whole thing. You can check it out online if you want. Um, but, you know, this church started off as an evangelical slash pretty close to fundamentalist very formal church. And when I came, uh, the average age was 70 years old and much smaller than it is right now. And the church gave me um, a massive umbrella of grace 
just to try stuff. I was 29 uh, when I came here. And if you do the math and you figure out 23 years after that, you know that I'm 39 now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I had some plans for what I wanted to do, but those things were mostly like just church revitalization stuff, like change in the worship style and all that stuff, which I did, which immediately got change back attacks. There are people that absolutely hate it, and I kind of feel bad about it. I wish I could, would have done it a little bit differently. If I had my understanding now, I would have done it. I just would have done things differently if I, if I knew now what I know because of my own maturity. Uh, I, would have, I would have just done it differently. We would have gotten about the same place, but maybe without as much turmoil. But there would still be turmoil. The change back attacks would be there. Uh, March ahead, you know, nine years, and we started to realize that the name of our church, the First Baptist Church of Napa, was problematic in reaching people who might want to give us a shot because we were thinking and talking differently. So we changed the name of the church, at least on our shingle, uh, to Crosswalk Community Church. Guess what? Change back attacks. Uh, it, was not a it was not a landslide victory when we voted on that one. Along the way, everything we did, if I was talking about gender equality, we lost people over that. Change back attacks. Even though I could demonstrate it biblically with scholars and all that and say, Jesus was egalitarian. Paul was egalitarian. Even though Paul in one context is saying, hey, make sure men are the ones in charge and doing the talking. Have the women be quiet. That's because of a very specific context. Because at the very same time, he has a woman being the pastor of a church in Philippi. So obviously, he's okay with women in leadership. First person that Jesus tells he's the Messiah, according to the Gospel of John, is a woman, a Samaritan woman at that, with a terrible, terrible, painful past. <laughs> Change back attacks, though. When you're an evangelical uh, tradition that has said that women are below men and are not really equals, that's a problem. Uh, I'll tell a little story on Pam. Uh, Gums, who you're going to hear next week. Uh, before she decided to uh, go further uh, into her time with Crosswalk, uh, she wanted to interview me, which I love that. You know, take, take this whole thing seriously. So she wanted to interview me, and one of her questions was, so I see on the website that you talk about gender equality. Is that really true? I'm like, yeah. No. Is that really, 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 really true? <laughs> because she'd had an experience where it was said, we're all equal, but then at the end of the day, in a church that she was a part of, uh, women found a ceiling real quick, uh, that they were never going to serve in the highest levels of leadership. They were never going to be on the board. They were never going to be teaching men. They were certainly never going to be a pastor. And so to say to her, yeah, seriously, uh, we don't, yeah, we've had women uh, chairs of our board, we, we will perhaps have a woman pastor here someday, who knows, uh, we're cool with it, our denomination is too. And so that gave her some great confidence. Uh, march a little bit forward, any kind of major move that we made, a stance toward uh, things that we thought uh, were true of what God was trying to do in the world, uh, we got change back attacks. When we stood for LGBTQ equality and marriage equality, uh, massive change back attacks. And we lost some people over that. And eventually some people heard that that's who we were and they came and they had an interview with me and they're like, so LGBTQ, are they really equal? Yeah. Are they really, 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 really equal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right, and we celebrate that. 
And that's wonderful. But along the way, change back attacks. When we take a stand for different social things that you know, we recognize, okay, God is with and for the vulnerable because nobody else is. So we want to lend a hand in that way. Change back attacks. Why? Because we're challenging systems that have been in place for a while. We're wanting to live into a truth and sometimes the climb is very, very steep, especially at the beginning. The interesting thing is, I was thinking about this uh, when I had um, a meeting uh, Thursday night. Uh, by the way, I have some handouts for you, for limited supply anyway, of a lot of the exercises that Martha Beck uh, does in her book, and you're welcome to take one of those free of charge, and we'll take a look at more exercises in a couple weeks. But I was thinking about my son, Noah, uh, who is an incredibly gifted trombonist. Uh, he started playing trombone when the trombone was bigger than him. <laughs> you know, blurting stuff out, and we're like, hey, we think this kid's got some chops. Well, when he started to play, he was pretty good and got the normal stuff, but jazz is a whole different animal, and learning to do improvisation is really tough. In the early days uh, in middle school, when his wonderful band director, Mr. Dan Peckham, uh, would encourage kids to just give it, a, give it a shot, and kids would give it a shot, you know, with their respective instruments, it was painful. It was really, really painful. <laughs> but they're doing the best they can, you know, to try to find it. And trombone's a little weird because you're using a slide, so it's not like you can just hope that you hit the valve and something will turn out right. You have to, like, find the pitch, and it's, it's complicated. Those early things that he was doing for him were very, very difficult. It was a, a steep climb. When he was in uh, the university uh, down south, and um, the, one of the musicians from a very well-known jazz band called the Big Fat Band, they do big band kind of stuff, they're fantastic. Well, one of their sax players was the director of the jazz band and helped nurture Noah along in his jazz playing so that he was able to incorporate new things and express himself more and became one of their primary soloists for Pepperdine's jazz band. It was really, really fun uh, to go listen to him. You know, it was really exciting, especially since I play trombone. And stuff that he does I could never do. Well, maybe I could, but I will never know because I probably won't give it that much effort. But my point is the things that he, he can do now in terms of jazz are much harder and much more complicated than just staying in the right key in middle school. But because he has all this experience under his belt, it's not that hard now even though the task is actually harder. And I found that to be true in my own life. And I think you can probably agree with this, that when you start to get in a pattern of uh, changing and realizing you're going to survive and you're going to get through this, and I think this happens naturally with age, uh, you realize that the next challenge may look really bad, but it's probably not going to be as bad because you've already been through so many change-back attacks your whole life. And I think that's true of everything. But we can still expect in whatever way we go to change the system, to live in the truth, there will be change back attacks because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't want to see reality, who doesn't want to see truth. You see this happen in relationships where I've been, I don't know, I've been a pastor since 1995 and I've sat down with many couples and it's not uncommon for one of the, one of the people in the relationship to be that identified patient to say, look, I've had enough and we've got to have a change. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it's the husband because uh, husbands or men are not nearly as emotionally developed, I think, as women for the most part. And so we, <laughs> you know, we have two emotions, you know, 
okay and mad, you know, kind of, and uh, so we mess things up a lot and don't pay attention a lot. So anyway, a lot of times it's, it's the guy that doesn't realize what's going on, and the guy has not realized that over time he's pulled more and more away from the relationship and doesn't understand why the dynamics of their relationship have changed. And all of a sudden he's finding himself being told to go sleep on the couch, and he's like, but we're married. And she's like, not for long, unless you change. And some guys wake up at that point, and they realize they have not been living in truth, and that it has caught up with them, and it has hurt the relationship to the point where it's not the same anymore, and a change has to happen. And sometimes these guys have gotten on board, and I've seen that a few times, which is great. A lot of times the guys don't, and sometimes it's the women. And it's ugly and painful. Why does this happen? Because change back attacks. Change is hard. Even when it's truth, it's hard. Well, uh, we'll talk a little about MLK, talk about a guy who understood change back attacks. I think, uh, I think we can see that that was absolutely true of him. Uh, he knew what it was to be uh, put in jail uh, inappropriate, un unjustly. Uh, he was part of marches that caused major bloodshed. Uh, he was the catalyst for so much change that got what? Pushback, change back attacks from people who were furious about this idea of equality. They were just simply saying the truth, uh, that we are not treated as equals in this country. Uh, we don't get, in his time, we don't have the right to vote. Or if we do have the technical right to vote, doesn't mean we're actually able to vote because of the, the strict standards that are put on people who are people of color that white people do not have to go through. And lots of documentaries on this, lots of research on this, tests that have to be passed perfectly until if they get, only, only if they pass do they get their voter registration. Or somebody who looks like me can just go in, sign their name, and they're good. Well, this stuff is still happening today. There's a, uh, did I put this up there? Oh, no, I didn't. Um, I like this uh, thing, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. Martin Luther King made that famous. Uh, he wasn't the, uh, the origin of that quote. This actually came from a white pastor in American slavery context, saying that he was hopeful that American slavery would one day end because the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. But what some people are recognizing right now is that it only bends toward justice when people are helping it bend. Because systems don't change on their own. Somebody, like a Martin Luther King, has to help with the bending. And we still have our issues today. Uh, this is a very recent. So just a couple weeks ago, on January 6th, a panel of three federal judges ruled that South Carolina's first congregational district is an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. Following the 2020 census, the Republican-dominated legislator moved 62% of the black voters previously in that district into the 6th district, turning what had recently been a swing district into a staunchly Republican one that Republican Nancy Mace won in November by 14 percentage points. District Judge Richard M. Gurgle said, if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, 
You know someone put it there. This is not a coincidence. So we still have our challenges today. Uh, and as Jesus people, as God people, as people who follow the Lamb of God, who came in uh, to take away the sin of the world, to correct that, to speak truth, to pursue justice, this is who God is. You look at the Old Testament, you listen to the prophets, the prophets are most of the time saying, you're slipping. You have fallen away from God. And how do we know we've fallen away from God? Because people are suffering when they shouldn't be suffering. And so the prophet uh, Micah is asking, well, what should we do to get God back on our side? Should we, uh, should we then, you know, kill some more animals, more goats, more bulls, more sheep, more birds? And God's answer through him is, no, I don't want 10,000 bulls sacrificed. I've had enough barbecue. What I want you to do is act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. That's Micah 6, 8. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. That's what Martin Luther King was trying to do. It's what Jesus did. Jesus got killed because he did this. He challenged the system. He brought truth, and the people uh, who recognized they were being called did a change-back attack that ended in his death. Martin Luther King followed the same step, and on April 4, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, this guy who was all about nonviolence demanded nonviolence as the only way to really achieve justice and to hold power accountable. He himself got gunned down by a sniper. So there's a price to pay for these things, and yet it's what we're called to do. A friend of mine uh, had a reflection on this particular Martin Luther King quote. Uh, from February 6, 1968, when he spoke out against the injustice of the Vietnam War. On some positions, cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expedi this is Martin Luther King. Expedia expediency asked the question, is it politic? Vanity asked the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because his conscience tells him it is right. My friend goes on to say, this resonates with me on a deep level. Being part of a, of a minority that recently achieved its full natural rights of existence in this country in the last eight years, I know what it is like to survive by playing it safe, to survive in the politic and to conform to what is popular, to survive meant being in the closet. But it is not enough just to survive. It is not right. It is through people like Martin Luther King Jr. and those who were drawn to him who stood up for what they believed to say it is not enough to just survive, but to live fully and respected for those for who they were as human beings. That was not safe. That was not politic. And that was not popular. But it was right. It is not enough to survive but to stand up against oppression of not only our neighbors here at home, but of our neighbors across the sea. That was not safe, politic, nor was it popular, but it was right. It is through people who stood up and asked, is it right that darkness has been beaten back to illuminate the humanity of those who were banished from society just for being a different color, a different gender, or a different orientation? It is through people like you that the torch is once again held high to continue the fight against the dark. And that is right. Don't you agree with my friend? 
His name is Robert Simmons, and he is the chair of our board of stewards, right there. And if you want to hear his voice do it, show up at 4 o'clock at today's MLK uh, celebration uh, at Congregation Beth Shalom. 4 o'clock you get to hear him and many other uh, great speakers. Uh, so thank you, Robert, for your good work on that. Well, the final thing we have here, I love this quote, the most dangerous places for creating change are also the ones where it's most desperately needed, where you know it's going to be a tough climb for a while. But that is what we're called to as human beings. Some of you, this is, is entirely intrapersonal. This is just about your solitary life, and you know that the things that you need to change, the things you need to see differently, are going to be Herculean to overcome and to accept, to see the lies that you've told yourself, heard from others, and believed, and made a life out of that. And you know you're in the dark wood of air, and you know what you need to do, and it's hard, but you're not alone. Jesus, when he called his disciples, the thing that he said right after the passage I read, he just kept saying to disciple after disciple after disciple for all different walks of life and stages of development, he just kept saying, come and see. Just come and see. And the Spirit of God is still saying to you and me, come and see. Come and see what we can do together for your life. Come and see what we can do together for your relationships. Come and see what we can do together for your families, for your community for your state, your nation, the world. Because the Lamb of God has come to take away the lie and to bring us into truth. That will mean life, true selves, integrity for everyone if we'll have it. Let's pray together. God, I trust that your spirit is in play. It always is. But will we take a moment and just listen? Looking for a nudge? Maybe an issue popping up in our minds, our consciousness? Something we know uh, that we need to think about, to pursue, to wonder, to query? Oftentimes they're vetted in conflict or angst. Sometimes they're related to our dreams. Help us be aware. Spirit of God, Spirit of truth, the light of the world, help us see. Help us hear your invitation to come and see that we might become more whole, that we might be living more and more like Jesus who lived in growing integrity in his life. May we find our true selves and the joy and deep peace that it brings. And may we find ourselves not just about ourselves, but may we turn our gaze on the world around us and wonder how might we shine the light of truth, the hope of becoming, wherever we gaze? I invite you, congregation, now to open your eyes and say this adaptation of the Lord's Prayer with me. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, 
who art here and everywhere. Thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so. Thanks for coming today, my friends. Hope you had a good experience, and we will see you sometime. All right.